Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And this is part three of Denial, the Chris Porco story. When we left you last week, Chris was near the end of his six-hour interrogation with the detectives. He'd lied throughout that interview and implicated himself without even realizing it. Clever boy. If you haven't taken the time to listen to part two or part one, probably go do that right now before listening to this one. We'll wait for you right here. So as you recall, Chris had insisted he'd slept on that couch in the dorm lounge all night on the night of the murder. The detectives informed him that they knew this wasn't true. They'd been asking his frat brothers, and no one could place him there. But they did have him on camera driving off campus in his Jeep. Hmm. Now that Chris knew what the investigators knew, he could make this work out all right. Chris didn't deny it was his Jeep, inadvertently giving the investigators more than he realized. His admitting that the Jeep on the camera was his and that he was driving it was a boon. This admission identified him as the driver in his yellow Jeep with the oversized tires, the big mud splatter, and the W2004 decal on the spare tire cover in a way that really helped to solve this crime. Yeah, that was a mistake. Mm-hmm. He didn't know it, though. So how did he explain leaving campus in his Jeep to the detectives? Oh, he said, oh, yeah, he forgot. He would had to move his Jeep off campus for the evening. But Chris couldn't tell them why the Jeep had to be moved or why no one saw him returning to campus. But he was now ready to address why his frat brothers couldn't place him asleep on the couch during the party that lasted from 10.30 p.m. to 3 a.m. He forgot. He hadn't been asleep on that couch all night. After he moved his car at 10.30, he just wandered around until around... What time did they say the party ended? (laughs) Oh, yeah, until after 3 a.m. And that's when he returned to the dorm lounge and fell asleep on the couch. He must have just missed the party. That's convenient. Well, of course, because he's taking the facts that he knows and creating a story. Mm -hmm. He's kind of creating the story backwards based on the facts that the police already have. Mm -hmm. A lot of liars do this to keep from being caught. Mm -hmm. He confidently told the police, and this is a quote, The surveillance cameras on campus don't show me going to the thruway. They don't show me going home. They show me going off campus. If I wanted to do something like this, if I wanted to sneak home on the thruway, why would I take a big yellow car? I mean, that makes no sense to me. I bet he couldn't get anyone to lend them his car because he's such a bad driver. I don't think it even crossed his mind. Oh, maybe not. (laughs) I think he just was confident he had this all ready to go. That makes sense. Yeah, but what Chris didn't know as he sassed the investigators was that they had his Jeep on a variety of cameras tracking his trip 
on the thruway toward home, as well as his return to campus the next morning at 8.30 a.m. Oh, how embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, like I was saying, the campus security system had a video of Chris's Jeep leaving the campus at 10.30 p.m. Well, he did have a point, though. That isn't proof that he went to Albany. Like, he could have just been going to 7-Eleven or another girl's house. <laughs> right. And you're correct. Um, on its own, that is no proof at all. But at 10.36 p.m., the surveillance camera on the roof of the off-campus medical center caught him heading east in the direction of the Porco home. And then, at 10.45 p.m., John Fallon, a New York State toll collector, recalled handing a toll ticket to a young man driving a yellow Jeep Wrangler with big tires. John remembered this clearly because he was a huge Jeep aficionado. He could describe the Jeep in great detail, saying he remembered it because he thought about how cool it would be to get one like this for his own son. And he accurately described Chris's Jeep? To a T. And then, at 1.51 a.m., Karen Russell, a toll collector nine miles away from the Porco's home and 228 miles away from Chris's dorm, recalled a young white male speeding into her lane at exit 24 in Albany. Remember, it was 2.15 a.m. when Chris disarmed that security alarm. When he entered the code, right? Right. When okay. he entered the code to get in the house without it going off. Mm -hmm. And then a neighbor, Marshall Gokey, noticed Chris's yellow Jeep at 4 a.m. on November 15th as it sat in the Porco's driveway. He'd driven by the Porco's house on his way to work, and he knew without a doubt it was Chris's Jeep. At 4.54 a.m., the security system records show the phone line to the house was cut, two and a half hours after the security code had been entered on the keypad of the alarm system. Okay, so it's all lining up so far. Yeah, and now we're back to the toll booths. At 5.12 a.m., Chris was back at that Albany toll booth getting a ticket. I mean, it's great that these toll operators remember a yellow Jeep and all, but that doesn't prove that their memories were accurate. You're right. And when the prosecution puts this case together, they have to take all of these teeny tiny little details, circumstantial evidence, mm -hmm. to show what happened and to prove what happened that night. Yeah, and the timeline is adding up. In a remarkable way. Mm -hmm. And everyone remembered that yellow Jeep with the very same distinctive W2004 decal and the significant mud splatter at each stop. The same decals and the same mud splatter sported by the Jeep Chris identified as his own. The Jeep he said he'd moved off campus for the evening. Yeah, it was a big mistake to admit that he had been in the car that evening going off campus. Absolutely, but he didn't know that. But another student had noticed Chris at the school the morning of the 15th. Chris had said he'd been out jogging. Armed with a search warrant, they searched Chris's dorm room, taking clothing, a computer, and even impounding that yellow Jeep he drove. They did not find one drop of blood on anything. Well, at least he's a tidy boy. Well, he had that job. Mm -hmm. He knew how to take care of cleanup. Yeah.
As Chris was being released from his interrogation, his mom had successfully made it through surgery and had been put into an induced coma to allow her brain to heal. When she emerged from that coma three weeks later, she did exactly what Chris figured she would do. She stood behind her son, saying there is no way her son had been her attacker. In fact, according to Murderpedia, Joan wrote a public letter to the Times Union paper saying in part, and this is a quote, I implore the Bethlehem police and the district attorney's office to leave my son alone and search for Peter's real killer or killers so he can rest in peace and my sons and I can live in safety. Wow, I can't believe that she did that, and I can't believe Chris knew she would. Kids know their parents really well, and the kids whose parents back them no matter what know that their parents back them no matter what. I know, but you would think that being almost murdered and having your husband murdered would have some impact. Mm -hmm. I agree, but you have to think, too, that Joan Porco is suffering a lot of loss here. She's lost her husband, she's lost the way she used to look, and now she's losing one of her sons. That would be hard to have all of that all at once. Yes, and a lot of parents do that. They do defend their kids, hoping against hope that things will be better if their child doesn't go to prison. Yeah. But in the end, it didn't really matter, because Chris was pretty much caught They arrested him for the murder of his father and the attempted murder of his mother. Joan, the erstwhile defender of her children, was livid when she realized she had been questioned and had implicated her son directly after the attack. But that's how investigators identify suspects, right? Immediately after an attack, if the victim is conscious and able to communicate, they have to try and get some information, right? That's exactly right especially if it looks like the person is likely to die. Investigators want to solve the crime and make sure the instigator gets caught. But Joan, now healing from her horrendous injuries, insisted the murderer could not be Chris. She said she had no memory of what had happened, but she was sure Chris wasn't the culprit. Wow, I don't know how she could be so confident given all the evidence. Well, given that she has no memory. Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) Right. But after a year-long investigation by the Bethlehem police, the New York State Police's forensic team, and eventually their large crimes team, wherein over 600 leads were followed, an indictment against Chris was handed down on November 5, 2005. His mother quietly began raising the $250,000 cash necessary to bail him out while he awaited trial. This meant Chris would not be staying in jail while awaiting trial. She even facilitated getting him back to work at that veterinary hospital he'd once allegedly robbed. Ah, friends of the family? Indeed. A couple named Elaine LaForte and John Kearney. They owned and operated the veterinary hospital. Elaine loved the Porco family dearly and didn't believe Chris was capable of doing this. She not only let him work at her veterinary clinic... She let him and Joan both live with her as Chris awaited trial. Elaine has never publicly given Chris a no-confidence vote despite knowing he had robbed their business. How about privately? (laughs) 
I, I don't personally know her, so I would have no way of answering that. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, there were rumors flying around that a bag of money was found in Peter Porkle's closet and that it was mob money. People were whispering this might be a mob hit or payback for Big Frank's recent activities. The axe that was found in the bedroom, people started calling it a fireman's axe, even though it was smaller than a fireman's axe, more lightweight, and had been used for the Porcos for chopping wood for a long time. Ah, that's a big difference. It really is. And other rumors that seemed to have basis in Chris's six-hour interrogation wherein he mentioned this very uncle and the possibility that the murders were connected to him. Although Chris would mention it and then, of course, say he didn't think there was a connection. Yeah, there was no reason to act like that. Well, he wanted to make sure it wasn't their idea that it was his idea. Oh, he thought that he was, like, just masterfully leading them. Right. So life didn't really change a lot for Chris. Chris was caught in photographs, drinking and partying it up with his friends and having fun and pretty much just going back to doing his Chris thing. Mm-hmm. Post-recovery, Joan began to tell a story about how approximately one week before the murder, a man had come up her driveway. It startled her because she didn't know him. When the motion sensor light was activated, she claimed the man had hurried away. She hadn't called the police, nor had she mentioned this alleged incident to anyone, not even her kids and there was no evidence that the man had malicious intent. Nevertheless, the police canvassed the neighborhood, talking to approximately 200 people in an attempt to find the scary man in the car. No one recalled seeing or hearing anything that resembled this incident. But they did locate someone who had seen Chris's Jeep parked at the Porcos. It was that neighbor, Marshall Goki, mm-hmm. the one that had been headed to work in the early morning hours. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Anyway, what happened at trial? Well, Chris's defense team did everything they could to ensure that Chris was not found guilty of this crime, of course. Mm -hmm. They got the trial moved 90 minutes away from Albany due to the intense local coverage the case had received. Makes sense. Yeah, I think that was a fair request. They filed 330 different motions for the judge to consider, trying to convince everyone that Chris did not do it, and that someone else might have. That seems insane. That's a lot of motions. It was, but it's their job to convince the jury that there might be another suspect, that someone else could have done it. And part of that is filing motions trying to get the judge to let things into evidence that may or may not be relevant to the case that could muddy the waters. Ah, I see. Yeah, and then... Because it was a lot of circumstantial evidence, every piece of evidence they could keep out, like the testimony of a tollbooth collector, would help break down the timeline and not make it as clear as we see it. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so they have to try and erode the story and then also try to find an alternative suspect to cast some doubt on. So, meanwhile, Joan had lived through her recovery from the attack. And, as we had said, it's been a very long road in front of her, but she traveled through the pain, grief, and injuries to become this miraculous survivor. That's so cool. Yeah, it's really amazing that she has been able to recover to the degree that she has, given how horribly she was attacked. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who are attacked like that will never walk again, will never talk again, and she's doing pretty well, all things considered. I'm so glad. 
Yeah, me too. But she still claimed to have no memory of that night, and she couldn't remember identifying Chris as the attacker as she lay beaten and bloodied in her bed. And now she was staunchly Team Chris. She denied Peter's mother and sister attendance at his final services because they believed that Chris was the attacker. Oh, that yeah. is so sad. It's awful, right? Mm-hmm. It's really sad to see a family divided at the time that they should be coming together to mourn. Yes. But then she wrote letters to the Times Union accusing the police of not doing their job and kind of picking on her son. <laughs> and she appeared at his side for every hearing and for each day of the trial, which must have been a horrible strain given her health. And one thing that I did notice and that I heard talked about quite a bit is she is comforting him and he is not comforting and supporting her as she walks through those terrible days at trial. Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic for sure. And a really sad one. Yeah. So when we get to the actual trial, the defense adopted this scary man in the car story and mounted what would be called a third party defense. Hmm. The scary man in the car must have done it and the police were so bent on blaming Chris that they'd completely missed the boat on their theory. They called the police work shoddy, proclaiming that there had been no follow-up on Joan's claims regarding the scary man in the car, which we know isn't true. Mm -hmm. They ignored 200 interviews that had taken place as the investigators tried to run down that scary man, which is very misleading. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the defense tried to get the judge to limit trial testimony for one of the first investigators to the murder scene, Detective Bodish. Oh, they wanted to muzzle his testimony regarding the murder scene and only allow him to answer questions in support of their scary man in the car theory. And the judge, of course, ruled against them. I'm glad. That would be so ridiculous. It is, and I think that they really just didn't want Detective Bodish to testify. The murder scene is really grisly, and that's emotional mm-hmm. testimony for the jury to hear. But then he would also testify about this really key piece of evidence, which was Jones nodding her head and moving her hands and saying, no, it was not this son. Yes, it was this son. Um, Twice. Yeah. It's it's pretty compelling testimony mm-hmm. um, because it's so close in time to the event and it's his own mother, right? Right. So that's a red herring, right? When the defense tries to introduce a notion that this third person is the killer when there's no proof that the person even exists. Yeah, it's absolutely a red herring. And it's a tactic that is typically ruled inadmissible in trials. Mm-hmm. Um, if the defense can get the jury to concentrate on the scary man in the car, they might be able to get Chris a not guilty verdict. And it's it's just kind of distracting. But it has to have some sort of basis, doesn't it? Theoretically, it does. But the defense team had a lot going on here. First, the scary man in the car that no one had heard about before Chris needed a defense. I mean, before the murders. Uh Then they threw in Frank Porco, incorrectly telling the jury that he was in prison for murder, which we know is not true. And they had to know that. Yeah, I mean, they must have done their research. Mm -hmm. And they also told the jury that he had enemies who might have hired a hitman because they were mad that he'd ratted them out, which he hadn't. Like we said before, he was no songbird. Mm -hmm. He was in prison because he'd refused to rat out any co-conspirators he might have had. Right, right. So the investigators had also done a pretty thorough job. They'd followed 421 leads in this case, and Frank's name had never surfaced as the potential murderer. Wow. Yeah, but this didn't stop the defense from accidentally misinforming the jury. 
and there were even more killers out there. The defense was just seeing killers everywhere. That's insane. Yeah, and then there was this other piece of really key evidence, and the judge had to decide whether this would be admissible. The defense moved to have Chris's six-hour interrogation excluded as evidence. Wow, why? Well, remember when John Polster had shown up and said he was going to be Chris's lawyer, but they asked Chris, kind of, and Chris said, no, he's not my Mm -hmm. lawyer? Yeah, so the defense argued that the testimony from that interrogation should be excluded because they had not done enough to check and see if he was represented and if he wanted his lawyer. The defense says that the detectives needed to say, hey, John Polster's here saying he's willing to act as your lawyer. Like, do you want him as your lawyer? Well, they didn't say it that way, but they kind of did. And he said, he's my dad's friend. I don't think it would be appropriate for him to be my lawyer. Yeah, I feel like his answer was pretty clear, but I also feel like the way they asked was a little bit leading, like they definitely wanted him to say no. Mm -hmm. And the judge agreed with the defense, saying that how the questions were framed to Chris meant that Chris's constitutional rights had been violated. Okay, fair. Yeah, and Chris was really happy to learn that the judge had ruled in his favor on this, because that six-hour interrogation was pretty strong evidence. And not being able to use that at trial was really good. For example, it would keep out his admission that he'd been driving his Jeep that night. Well, and it would kind of keep out his big lie that he was staying in the lounge that evening, right? Well, maybe, because they would also have the witnesses from everyone else saying, we don't know where he was, he wasn't here. But yeah, you're right, it would get rid of that initial lie. Okay, so it makes sense. They can't use the interrogation showing that he lied, but they can show with other sources that he was telling that lie to several people. Yeah, and that it was, in fact, a lie. Okay. So, he was feeling pretty good. You know how early wins are a good sign, right? Not always. Well, exactly. (laughs) So, these early motions kind of set parameters, almost like setting up the rules before a football game. Mm -hmm. But the attorneys could still bring in evidence without tying it all to his lies during the interrogation, especially regarding his lie about sleeping in the lounge area. Mm -hmm. Because Chris had told that story to everyone, not just the police in that initial interrogation. So it made it a little bit harder because they would have to build their case by introducing that story through other people Chris had lied to. But that's exactly what they did. The prosecution really brought a strong case. And a lot was admitted into evidence. I think they did a good job. Yeah. So what were the different pieces of evidence that they brought to trial? So Officer Bodish and the three emergency responders who first arrived on scene, they were brought as witnesses and they testified regarding how Mrs. Porco had strongly indicated that Chris was her attacker in those early morning hours. This was the only direct evidence provided at trial. The victim named her perpetrator. That is strong. Yeah. And then his brother, Jonathan, who at this time was now a successful naval officer, also testified at the trial. He and his brother didn't look at each other even once during his testimony. Mm. John described his dad for the jury, saying, Dad was a hardworking guy who loved the law, and he was a good father. I like that. Yeah. He said that Chris for sure knew about the inheritance his parents were leaving him. He was well aware of the million-dollar life insurance policy they held and all of their assets. Their parents had talked about it openly with the boys, which we always recommend you do not do. (laughs) Right. Don't tell your kids you have anything that they get. That's right. And he also shared his mother's story about the scary man in the car 
and testified that it was never mentioned until after the murder. So almost like it might have been construed for the trial? Mm-hmm. Okay. He said that he helped bail his brother out of jail because that's what his mother really wanted, and he wanted her to have what she wanted. At least she has one good son. Yeah, he seems to be very committed to her and her happiness. That's sweet. Yeah. But he also said that after she'd been released from the hospital, she had no memory of the night of the murder. But she wasn't afraid of Chris. Hmm. The defense had started referring to the axe as a fireman's axe. Oh, yeah, like we were saying. Mm-hmm. But when asked about the axe that had been stored in the garage, John said, It was a regular axe you could buy at the department store. When asked by the prosecuting attorney about his relationship with Chris at present, Jonathan described it as strained, but did not elaborate. Woof. Yeah, that must have been really hard testimony for him. Mm-hmm. I really feel sorry for John. Yeah. So, next, Marshall Gokey testified, saying the same exact thing he'd always said, that Chris Porco's distinctive yellow Jeep had been parked at the Porco home around 4 a.m. on November 15th as he passed by the home on his way to work. He left home every Monday morning at 4 a.m. to head to the construction site he was supervising, returning home at the end of each week. Hmm. The Porco home was just a few doors down from his home. The defense countered, saying that Mr. Goki must have been confused. But Mr. Goki was sure of what he saw. Because he left early Monday and wouldn't be back until the end of the week, he always took a careful, long look at the neighborhood as he left for work. He noticed Chris's distinctive yellow Jeep tucked in the right side of the Porco's driveway, the front end of the Jeep facing the garage. It's pretty specific. It is. And the defense threw a lot of stuff at Mr. Goki, like there were two yellow jeeps in the neighborhood. Perhaps he was confused. He was probably looking for a deer who might dash across the street in front of him instead of noting that jeep in the Porco driveway. The lack of streetlights would have made it difficult for Mr. Goki to actually see Chris's yellow jeep in the driveway. But Mr. Goki held fast. He knew what he'd seen, and it was Chris's yellow jeep in the Porco driveway at 4 a.m. on November 15th. Well, how do you know that was Chris's yellow Jeep, the defense asked. Mr. Goki testified that he easily recognized the Jeep because he had frequently seen it driving recklessly through the neighborhood at a relatively high speed. He didn't know the family. He just knew the driver of that Jeep was someone he wouldn't like and it always pulled into the same home. The home he knew was the Porco home. He'd know that Jeep anywhere. I think it's funny. It's really true. If you're a parent and some kid is always driving through your neighborhood at high speed... You don't have to know who the kid is, but you always know that car. That was kind of a mistake for Chris to do. Yeah, he drove recklessly all of the time, and people noticed him because of it. Mm -hmm. He drove a conspicuous car dangerously, and of course it attracted attention. Well, and I think it's funny he didn't even know the Porcos, didn't even know Chris, but he knew the Jeep. Mm -hmm. And I could see him (laughs) driving down the road going, the Jeep. Yep, exactly. So, the defense declared that they were going to bring in a private investigator who would refute his claims regarding his ability to see that Jeep. But, of course, they never did. Hmm. I think it's interesting that they make all of these declarations and then they never follow up on it. But they're hoping the jury will use it to cast doubt. Yeah. You have to actually follow up, though, or the jury doesn't believe you. Truth. 
So Joan Porco appeared on the list of both the prosecution and the defense, and she wound up testifying for the prosecution. Mm. She testified quietly, carefully responding to what the attorneys asked her. She said she had no recollection of what had happened in her bedroom in the early morning hours of November 15, 2004. The jury was stunned as they watched her testify, the damage from the attack still evident on her face. She couldn't remember the attack, whether her husband cried out or even how she was taken to the hospital. She doesn't recall indicating to the police that her son Christopher was behind the attack. Mrs. Porco testified that the last memory she had prior to waking up in the hospital bed was that on that Sunday afternoon before the attacks, her last day with her husband, Peter had started working on the lawn and I went to the Y to secure a membership for my family. Mm. This was probably in anticipation of the boys being home for the holidays. Yeah. When asked if she had any memories regarding the murder, she said, and this is a quote, no, because of the damage that I have, I feel I have amnesia. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people wonder whether it's denial that caused her to feel she had amnesia. I don't know. She recalled being livid when told that she had nodded in the affirmative, unable to speak with her jaw shattered, when Detective Bodish asked her if Christopher had been behind the attack. She thought that was absurd. So... If she didn't have any memory of the attack, why did the prosecutor have her on the stand testifying? Because she can't testify to something she can't remember. Well, you're right, but that wasn't all she needed to testify about. Oh, what else did she need to testify about? I thought that's the whole point. No, the prosecution was also very interested in ensuring that the 30 emails written between January and November of 2004 made it into evidence and they would need her to confirm them so that it wasn't hearsay. Oh. So many of the emails were messages from Joan questioning Chris regarding his financial affairs. In one, she chided Chris saying, quote, Honesty and integrity are the most important things in life, unquote. That was in September. Mm. There was an email in October from Joan asking her son why he was not picking up the phone. The emails indicated Jonathan had tried to call him over 40 times to question him about a computer, his mother's computer, that was stolen from the home during one of those robberies that Chris was trying to sell on eBay. There was one from his mother during the time when Chris was not responding because his father had busted him forging his name to get loans that said, quote, Don't you want to talk to us? Are you hiding something? Unquote. Eventually, Chris answered his mother's pleas for contact, saying he was selling computers on eBay, ignoring the fact that it was her stolen computer, because he was trying to finance his education. The fact of the matter is that he was also stealing computers from his friends and his doormates at the University of Rochester. Wow. Yeah. He said that he was selling things on eBay and also working at the veterinarian hospital where he'd worked since high school mm -hmm. and subsequently robbed. And lived 230 miles away from. Yeah, but he said he was doing all of this just to stay afloat. Huh. And then there was an email from Joan sent two weeks prior to the attacks indicating the Jeep loan Chris had taken out was now going to collections because he'd never bothered making payments on it. Mm. She emailed him saying, quote, We do not want companies calling here anymore. This is very upsetting to us. What were you thinking? A due date is a due date. What don't you understand? 
are you crazy? Unquote. Oh, she was mad. Yeah, she started to get more and more angry with him, but I guess not angry enough to testify against him in court. Mm -hmm. But you can feel her mounting frustration in these emails. She knew Chris understood what he was doing. She knew he was completely sane and simply choosing not to pay the debts he had incurred. And she knew it was breaking her heart to see him act like this. She admitted that she was angry at him when she wrote the bulk of those emails. Which anyone would be, of course. Understandably. Yeah. I mean, that ends up being some pretty strong testimony against him, even though that's not what she wanted to do. I mean, yeah, it was right there in black and white. Yeah. So then an alarm system security technician testified. The security system that protected the Porco's home always remotely recorded the times the alarm was enabled and disarmed, along with any attempts that got it wrong. Cool. So this testimony was to prove that the security system was disarmed by an accurate first attempt at entering the code. This was not someone guessing it. Mm -hmm. And this code was known only to the four members of the Porco family and two other people. Mm -hmm. So although Chris later smashed the security alarm panel, he wasn't aware that the security system data recorded to a box in the basement The security panel that got smashed was just cosmetic. It didn't store the recordings. Nice. Yeah. And the technician also testified that the security system recorded the time of the telephone lines being cut approximately two and a half hours later at 4.54 a.m. And someone who was going into the home to murder them as a stranger would have cut the lines and then disabled the security. You would think so, right? Right. So... Then they also had the toll collectors testify mm-hmm. about seeing Chris pass through their toll plazas. He entered the thruway at Rochester at 10.45 p.m. on November 14th. He exited the thruway at the Gilderland exit at 1.51 a.m., which is only nine miles from the Porco home. And then the off-campus video cam footage showed the Jeep heading back to the University of Rochester at 8.30 a.m. Now, the defense countered, saying there was no blood in the Jeep, No blood found on anything of Chris's that they'd confiscated, and no finger marks to prove it was Chris. They suggested that this was a sign of a professional killing. Except, professional killers don't show up at a murder scene counting on finding a decent weapon in the garage and knowing the code to the security system. Neither do they put the dog in the basement, where the family always puts the dog when they need to put it away, Mm -hmm. instead of letting it run away. Yeah, and then not even bringing into question what kind of dog is letting strangers put it in the basement in the middle of the night. Right. That just doesn't happen. Mm -mm. Not without a ruckus. No. So then the other thing that was introduced as evidence was those toll tickets from the throughway. They had been DNA tested and Chris's mitochondrial DNA had been identified on them. That DNA had some highly rare markers and Chris also had those highly rare markers in his DNA. The defense countered with testimony saying that the claim must be overstated. But the DNA was still there at the exact same toll booth that Chris had passed through on the exact same ticket that he was alleged to have used on that fateful trip. Now, I know that the tickets, I imagined them going through billions and billions of tickets Mm -hmm. and thought, oh, how? Easy pass. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, he had an easy pass that he disabled and put on the floorboard of his Jeep at some point. I don't know when he put it there. 
Um, but he was trying to evade detection by not using that easy pass. Yeah. Um, the tickets, they talked about how that happens, and they said that these toll booths, the workers wear gloves, mm-hmm. and the boxes that they collect them in are, like, recorded by time, and then they store them all. So they were able to take that time and pull the tickets, and there were only, like, 12 tickets that they had to look through and do all of the testing on. It wasn't thousands and thousands. It was 12 because of the time and how slow traffic was and the location. That makes sense. So, yeah. So next we have the testimony of Detective Bodish and the emergency responders from that morning. Mm-hmm. And they all testify that they had witnessed Joan Porco shaking her head in the negative when Detective Bodish asked if Jonathan had been her attacker. And then nodding her head in the affirmative when asked if Chris was her attacker. And then repeating that nod when asked a second time. According to reporting by the Times Union... Testimony indicated that Mrs. Porco was conscious, alert, and adamant that Chris had been the attacker. There was no mistaking her response. Although now, Mrs. Porco was claiming to have complete amnesia and insisting there was no way Chris could have been her attacker. The defense countered this evidence by saying that no one could know for sure that Joan Porco was alert, awake, and aware that day. Which, if people had to talk in order to prove that they were alert and awake, a lot of people would be considered incapable of communication who are perfectly capable of communication. That's very true. And I watched a panel discussion on this that was 15 years after everything had happened. And remember, she's a speech pathologist. Mm -hmm. And she was using her fingers like she would with kids who don't communicate. Yeah. Up and down is yes, side to side is no. So it wasn't just nodding and shaking she was communicating effectively Mm -hmm. using the tools that she knew how to use that's right what was really obviously missing at trial was any of chris's frat brothers or doormates who could place him on the campus anytime between 10 30 p.m on november 14th through the next morning Mm. there was not one witness to testify that he was sleeping on that couch in the dorm lounge as his friends partied into the night despite a search wherein approximately 400 students were interviewed. But nine of his frat brothers and roommates did come forward to testify that he most definitely was not asleep on that couch in the lounge that night. There were questions about whether anyone had seen Chris on campus at all that night, and the defense tried to just brush them off without opening the door to actually getting his interrogation Mm -hmm. admitted by asking witnesses for the prosecution if it was possible that Chris might have been out getting food during those hours. I wonder if the defense forgot that he just went to, what was it, Taco Bell or something Mm -hmm. with his friend before he left. Yeah, and it doesn't make sense that 10.30 to 3 a.m. is a long time to not show back up to a party. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of food you'd have to eat. It is. So then the prosecution reminded the jury of the break-ins at the Porco home in 2002 and 2003. A few months into that case, the state major crimes team showed up to help the Bethlehem police with what had become a massive investigation. The state forensic team had always been involved, but as it grew, it became clear that more boots on the ground were needed. I think this is so funny because the defense kept saying, oh, they blamed Chris right at the beginning and they just held fast to that. They didn't even investigate this. And yet they had three teams of investigators on it. They were taking it very seriously. 
Yeah, this was a huge case for them, and they were tracing back all the threads to try and ensure that they identified the true killer. Mm-hmm. I think they did a pretty thorough job. And investigators discovered that items stolen from the three burglaries, mm-hmm. the two at his parents' home, and the one at the veterinarian's hospital, mm-hmm. they'd been sold on eBay under Chris's account. Mm-hmm. They traced one of Joan's computers that had been lost in the burglaries to San Diego, California. And they traveled to California to recover the stolen property and ascertain who had sold the computer to its new owner. While getting a suntan. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe a little bit of that. But the answer was obvious, of course. It was Chris Porco who sold it to them on eBay. Mm -hmm. They also found a camera stolen during a break-in at the veterinarian hospital, as well as his old boss, John Kearney's watch, in a safe in Chris's bedroom at the Porco home. Oh, now... That's a lot. It is. And not that stealing from the very people who loved and financially supported him was proof that he'd murdered them, but trying to cover up crimes with poorly staged break-ins seemed to have been kind of his thing. When asked about this break-in during the trial, Joan Porco said, quote, He didn't break in. He lived there. It's unfortunate he didn't tell me his needs, unquote. Um, that's a really odd way to frame it, because it was fairly clear through the emails that she knew what his needs were, and it was more about him needing to be honest than needing extra money. Exactly. And it just shows the length she would go to to reframe him and his behavior after such a heinous act. Yeah. The next witness was Joe Catalano a one-time youth minister who now worked for the State Higher Education Services and had known Chris since he was a junior in high school from their church activities. Mm. Chris had recently contacted him trying to figure out a way to get his hands on a $5,000 unsecured loan, telling Joe his scholarships that he didn't have hadn't kicked in yet. Wow, this kid was looking for money everywhere. He was. He seems to have been quite desperate. Mm -hmm. After the murders... Mr. Catalano rushed to the hospital to support Christopher and found him to be odd, no grief whatsoever, and remarkably void of caring. He spent three hours with Chris that night, and it wasn't what Joe expected at all. Chris didn't talk about his mother, or really even his father, although he'd mentioned he'd had a chance to say goodbye to his dad when he stopped by the house on the 13th. There that is again. Yeah, and what a strange thing to say. Usually people are mourning the chance that they didn't know and didn't get a chance to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. And the 13th is when he denied he'd seen his dad. Yeah, so it just doesn't make sense all around. Right, but very sad. Mm-hmm. But Joe said that Chris mostly talked about his interrogation and how mad he was at the Bethlehem Police Department over it. It all left Joe very uneasy. When asked that night if he was feeling any grief, he quickly responded, none whatsoever. (laughs) Well, I heard from somewhere that Chris was hitting up family about selling their home the very next day. Is that true? That does appear to be the case, sadly. Wow. Yeah. And again, indicates that he'd had a lot more time to process this than anyone else. (laughs) Indeed. So the defense also brought a witness. They brought someone named Stephen Myers, Mm -hmm. who testified that he had seen two cars at the usually deserted intersection of Charles Boulevard 
and Orchard Street between 2 and 2.15 a.m. One was aggressively tailgating the other, but he was tired and he went to bed. He was coming home from his second job and was beat. He did contact the police about the cars the next day when he heard about the attack. Well, that could be something, right? Um, I think the defense thought so, or hoped the jury would think so. Mm-hmm. But it seems unlikely when you are actually putting together the timeline, if you put the cars in context. It's hard to do this without looking at a map, mm-hmm. but the cars were seen between 2 and 2.15, speeding in the general direction of away from the scene of the crime. The okay, se- like they were escaping? Kind of like they were okay. escaping. okay. But again, if you're looking at the map, the streets don't look quite like they were escaping. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, the security code was used to disable the alarm in the home at 2.14. Oh, then those cars were not involved. No, because they would have run away right after, like, seconds after disabling the alarm. Mm-hmm. Leaving them unable to commit the crime. Right. And then, of course, there's this old saying, don't break the law while you're breaking the law. <laughs> Um, most criminals, even petty criminals, follow this law. So anyone smart enough to know how to not leave fingerprints or his own blood on the murder weapon would surely have realized the danger of detection should they decide to aggress each other in their cars as they leave the scene of the crime. That's very true, because if he said the cars, one was on the bumper of the other, they were aggressing each other. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like he would do that if you were a professional killer 14 seconds after you disabled an alarm in a home where one man is murdered and another woman is brutalized Mm -hmm. and you just don't have time and then also it just isn't what a professional would do i agree i don't think that sounds like they were involved at all yeah and so based on what mr meyer described i pulled up a map of the area and like i was saying it just doesn't make sense Mm mm-hmm And this left me with a lot of questions, doubting that those two cars had anything to do with this crime, and even how Mr. Myers had come to see the two cars. It just seems wrong on so many levels. Okay. So, one of my personal favorites from the defense was this. (laughs) Chris was young, and kids nowadays, I have a son of my own, so I know this, they don't use cash. They don't carry cash, and they don't use cash. Since Chris would have had to stop at a gas station for gas, and there are not gas station receipts, we can safely say Chris didn't do it. Oh, kids nowadays. Yeah, which (laughs) is really interesting, but ignores the fact that he had used cash the night prior when he went to TGI Fridays with his girlfriend and her sister. So Minor detail. Yeah, (laughs) and also kids definitely know how to use cash. And do use cash. Mm -hmm. Especially if they're trying to avoid detection. Mm Mm-hmm. So that was pretty silly, but the theory that the Porcos were attacked because of Peter's uncle Frank, you know, Fireman Frank, oh, mm-hmm. that was shown to be completely ludicrous, despite it being included in the opening statement for the defense. This theory had been thoroughly investigated by the police, mm-hmm. and it was determined that he had nothing to do with Peter's murder. First... Uncle Frank himself was serving time in a federal prison because he had not ratted out his compatriots. He was not in prison for murder, as falsely claimed by Chris's defense attorneys in front of the jury. That just sounds like theater to me. I'm sorry, but saying things in front of the jury that you know are patently false seems like theater. And also is generally not advised. Like, it's just not a smart move because then the jury doesn't trust you. Mm Mm-hmm. So, anyway, Fireman Frank was actually in for not cooperating. Um, And the prosecution's take on this theory was this. 
Quote, the idea that the Bonanno crime family sends a hitman up to Del Mar, New York without a weapon and tells him to find an axe and take the axe from the garage and use that one. <laughs> Frankly, to me, this is absurd. <laughs> I would have to agree with them. I, yeah, I don't think that there's any point to even making that argument, honestly. But even even as dumb as that one is, it seems like there was even a crazier one, wasn't there? That's right. So they have another theory, which is that a Mr. DeLucia, an angry litigant who had made threats against Judge Cardona and Peter when he was embroiled in and losing a child custody case 15 years prior, <laughs> was also brought up as a potential suspect for the murder. They thought this man, 15 years later, decided to make good on his threat? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Um, I guess it makes more sense than Fireman Frank, but not much more. <laughs> so they're trying to blame an angry litigant from 15 years ago. Yes, it's just, it's silly. I watched an interview set up by Times Union called The Chris Porco Case mm -hmm. 15 years later. And this is a show that the prosecution team and the defense team appeared on to discuss the case. Oh, okay. The defense team complained that the prosecution team had refuted the Mr. DeLucia theory by using defense witness testimony that alibied Mr. DeLucia. He was miles away in Virginia going about his business. And this is what was said. It was kind of bizarre. So the prosecutor says the individual was Patrick DeLucia. He had threatened Peter in the past. That was a lead that was followed up on. He was alibied using swipe cards the morning of the homicide. And the defense says, a little mm. smugly. Right. By a bunch of prosecution witnesses, they alibied him. I mean, no disrespect intended here, but... <laughs> and the prosecutor was, of course, frustrated and says, well, those are the only kinds of witnesses that we, the prosecution, have. And he said, I know. I've noticed that. Yeah. And for some reason, the audience laughs at that. It's kind of silly. It's like, of course, <laughs> the prosecution brings prosecution witnesses that... They're not going to bring your witnesses for their proposition. I'm not sure the defense team was clear on how trials work. I mean, if the prosecution brings in prosecution witnesses and the defense team is welcome to bring in defense witnesses, there are no other kinds of witnesses available. And most people would expect the prosecution witnesses to, in this case, say, no, that other guy couldn't have possibly done it. That's the prosecution's job. It is. Like, that's just how it works. So I'm not sure what the issue was there. So he was just doing everything he could, just, even at this late date, to try and diminish the evidence set forth by the prosecution, which has already been accepted by the jury. There's no point of trying to try this in the court of public opinion. It's already been decided. But it was just silly because the prosecution team will most assuredly bring only prosecution witnesses to testify at trial. In every single case. Very true. So, speaking of the jury trial, on the morning of August 10th, 2006, after the jury of eight women and four men had spent 21 days listening to testimony and then less than six hours in deliberations. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was very fast for murder. Mm -hmm. They convicted Chris on one count of second degree murder and one count of second degree attempted murder. And there was a lot of public controversy. But if you read the court documents and other source material, and then read the newspaper articles and listen to subsequent interviews with the defense team, you can see why. It seems like the defense would feed the media a lot of stuff and then forget the facts that would back up that stuff. Hmm. So, like, it, 
we've talked about, they'd point mm-hmm. a finger at Frank Porco. Mm-hmm. They'd tell the media the investigators never followed up on Fireman Frank, even though a fireman's axe was used in the murder. Mm-hmm. But we know that there was a very conscientious follow-up, and Frank Porco was not Frank the Fireman. He was Big Frank, and the axe used was not a fireman's axe. It was the axe that Peter kept in the garage to chop wood, plain Mm -hmm. and simple and covered in court, Yeah, while being sensationalized in the media. Yeah, that seems to be a little beyond ridiculous. It does. And then, you know, like the two cars aggressing each other as they drove down Orchard. That was also investigated, and the defense complaining that the testimony came from the prosecution witnesses, like that was a bad thing. Well, to be fair, it was a very bad thing for Chris. Wasn't there something about Chris's gas tank used at trial, too? Oh, yeah, I almost forgot about that. So they had receipts showing that Chris had completely refilled his gas tank in Rochester after he'd gotten back into town from visiting Sarah's. Oh, and that was also in the interrogation, even though they couldn't use it at trial? Yeah. He did say that when he got back to town, he filled his gas tank. So it wasn't just receipts, it was him. Yeah. Anyway. But at trial, they couldn't use that, so they used receipts. Right. So that would have been on Saturday afternoon. Mm -hmm. So he had accounted for his time on Friday going forward, and none of it included long drives or really even leaving Monroe Hall. So Saturday, later in the day, through Sunday at 10 p.m. is covered as Mm -hmm. far as driving goes. So based on the timeline of what Chris said he did, his Jeep should have had a fairly full tank of gas on Monday morning when the police confiscated his Jeep. But guess what they found? Or rather, didn't. (laughs) Uh, I'm betting they didn't find something. A tank full of gas. You're correct. Chris's gas tank was practically empty, indicating Chris had done a substantial amount of driving after he got back to school on Saturday in the early evening. Oh, wow. That's something that's not talked about very much. No, it's not. It's probably not the most vital piece of evidence, but it is interesting. Mm -hmm. Another piece to the puzzle. So, now we're to the verdict. Okay. Chris stared straight ahead as the verdict was read. His mother who throughout the trial had been hugging him and lending him support, did not attend court for the verdict. But she did attend the sentencing. Why wasn't she there when the verdict was read? It wasn't really announced that a verdict was coming in. Everyone thought that they were reassembling to field more questions from the jury. Joan was in a nearby hotel taking a rest and thinking the verdict was hours away. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I couldn't understand why she would be there the entire time but not show up for that. It sounds like it was maybe like a miscommunication. Yeah, and I don't think anyone expected a verdict in six hours. That's really quick. Yeah. So, in a documentary called Family Ties by Forensic Files, one of the jurors was interviewed after the trial. He said, quote, We really wanted to find something that made him innocent, you know, and that we could say that, no, the prosecution's evidence just doesn't add up. It doesn't match up. He didn't do this to his parents, thank God. But we didn't find that. That's not how we found in our verdict, unquote. Wow. Yeah. I think that nobody wants to believe that this is what happened, but it is. 
Yes, and going in with mostly circumstantial evidence, they probably thought they were going to be coming out with a not guilty verdict. Yeah, I think they had a lot of hope, but there was a lot of evidence. So, six months later, on December 12th, 2006, Chris stood before the judge again for his sentencing hearing. Peter's sister, Patricia Sostak, Peter's mother, Jane Porco Whalen, and Joan Porco all asked to address the court. Mrs. Sostak spoke of the losses she had endured since the murder of her brother. Oh. Yeah, that would be just awful. She spoke of how the murders had personally touched her and had decimated and divided her beloved family, saying, quote, We are now a small band of survivors of murder, and our time together is overshadowed by our unspeakable grief. That's, Unquote. that's heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. And she, of course, talked about her sorrow how she missed her brother dearly, what a good man he was, and the terror of thinking about how he must have felt as he made his final mysterious movements about the house and then died. Mm. And then she spoke about the rift the murder had caused, how she and her mother were robbed of the opportunity to attend the last rites for their son and their brother, and she condemned the murder. I can see why. Yeah, this would be a very hard testimony to give and peter's mother wasn't able to give the testimony and this is mrs whalen yeah mrs whalen she had written a letter but she was too frail to attend the hearing the letter was read aloud in court and she spoke of her pride in her son and her love of him and the strong caring person he was she spoke in support of the verdict that had been reached and said quote i no longer live in fear that my family will come to more harm I do not fully understand what happened to my grandson, and I hope and I pray that he can be cured. But unless that happens, he must not be allowed to kill again, unquote. So this is Chris's grandmother, the one he kept telling everyone was dead, right? Yes, it was. And I can't imagine what it must have felt like for her to realize he was running around telling everyone he was living off of his dead grandmother's money, and it was her. That must have been very frightening, especially when she realized he was happy to kill for an inheritance. Right. That must have been very scary. I think that would have been terrifying, especially when they find prospectuses for wealth management. Yeah. um, I think that if I were her, I would have been terrified every day that he was out of jail. Mm -hmm. I would have to. So the next person to testify was Joan Porco. Mm Mm-hmm. She asked for leniency for Christopher and said that he had paid for all of his past mistakes and this wasn't one of his past mistakes, both of which statements I don't think are true. He didn't pay for any of his past mistakes and this was one of his, I guess you could call it mistakes. Yeah, I mean, she was right that it wasn't a mistake. That's true. This was very intentionally done. Right. But she didn't think he was capable of doing this something this terrible. It broke my heart watching her try to defend her family, saying, quote, Christopher is the product of a loving and supportive family, unquote, because he was. And it appears that she felt she had to defend who they were because of what he'd done, or that it was somehow a type of defense to show why it couldn't be him. It's clear that she believes in the tales the media spins about parasite only happening to abusive parents. The truth of the matter is that being good parents and good people will not insulate you from becoming victims of parasite. 
This is some of the greatest damage the media does by perpetuating the abuse myth. Child abuse is not the only reason children murder their parents, and it leaves surviving family members on the defense. Well, of course, and then they have a harder time grieving. Mm-hmm. And they sit there doubting themselves, going, how did we cause this? This must be our fault. Well, or they're just defending their dead parents. Mm-hmm. It's just sad. It is very sad. And finally, Chris spoke. He did not show remorse mm-hmm. or sorrow. Predictably. Well, Yeah. No sorrow for others, at least. Mm -hmm. There was only this resounding, I didn't do it. He sounded like he was trying to be his own defense team in the closing statement. There was no sorrow over the death of his father or sorrow for the current physical, emotional, and psychological pain his mother had to endure. All brain and no heart, right? Exactly. And maybe only about half a brain. (laughs) But now it was time for the judge to render a sentence. He started saying, quote, Christopher Porco, you are a very intelligent young man. You come from two wonderful parents. Your brother is a credit to society. You come from a very close-knit family. I look at that family now, and I see it torn apart in many ways, unquote. The judge noted that Chris had had a very fair trial. 330 motions from the defense had been filed and decided upon. The judge noted, quote, While your attorney is correct that you have no prior convictions, you surely had a lot of illegal acts that you participated in that I prevented this jury from finding out because I felt that would cause you to not have a fair trial, unquote. The judge also said, quote, I fear very much what happened in the early morning hours of November 15th is something that could happen again. He sentenced Chris to the maximum allowable penalty, 25 years to life for the second-degree murder of his father, and 25 to life for the second-degree attempted murder and maiming of his mother, to be served consecutively. So Chris would be spending at least 50 years in prison before he would be eligible for release. Uh, 50 years for sure? Well, not 50 real years, 50 prison years. Okay. We've talked about this before. Good behavior is incentivized in prison, so in reality, if Chris plays by the rules and stays out of trouble, he could be out in 46 and a half years. But if he doesn't, he could be in for as long as his entire life. His first parole eligibility date is set in December of 2052. And in prison, he has given at least one interview that I watched, Mm -hmm. and he is still saying, I was asleep in the lounge. Everyone watching Strike would have noticed that. That he is holding on to that still, when it has been shown to be a blatant lie, says a lot. It does. But it's hard. And I know we've talked mostly about Joan and Jonathan, but when someone murders their parents, there's a whole confused family left to grieve. And they can't grieve at all. Mm -hmm. They find themselves in a fishbowl fighting for the reputation and the memories of their mother, father, uncle, aunt, Sister, brother, grandma, grandpa, or best friend. People can't grieve their loved one or figure out what to do about the murderer when they are having to deal with the publicity and the trial. It's only after the trial that the family can finally push their grief to the forefront and deal with their loss. Peter Porco's sister confirmed this after Chris's verdict was read. She told the Journal News, Now we get to try to put things back together. 
we have to rebuild as a family. Which in some cases never happens. Yeah, I hope it does for them, but it can be very hard, especially when you have people on the side of the murderer. Mm-hmm. So I think that the relief that it was over was evident, but that was only because she didn't understand that it would never really be over. And that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Christopher appealed the case in 2010, complaining that Joan's identification of Christopher at the scene of the murder should not have been admitted into evidence as an excited utterance, that it was hearsay since she couldn't remember it after her surgery and subsequent induced coma. This was filed in the second district court because Peter had worked in the third district appellate courts where the murder occurred. Yeah. The second district appellate court held that Joan's identification of Christopher should not have been admitted as evidence, but that any error in admitting that evidence was harmless in light of the overwhelming evidence of the defendant's guilt, and there was no substantial probability that the error might have contributed to his conviction. Very true. They had a boatload of evidence. Yeah, that was obviously not what the case hinged on. Mm -mm. So the appeal had gone on to complain that evidence allowed in at trial, proving that it was Christopher who had staged a break-in at his parents' home to cover his theft of their electronics, should have been inadmissible. The appeals court rejected this argument, confirming that although all of Chris's bad acts had not been admitted into evidence, this had been because it was used to establish Chris's unique modus operandi, and the court had admonished the jurors to utilize the evidence as such. The judge knew what he was doing. He ran a tight courtroom and worked hard to ensure that justice was served. I think he did a great job. Mm Mm-hmm. But Chris didn't. (sighs) Unhappy about the results of that appeal, Christopher appealed to the New York Court of Appeals, and his conviction was again affirmed on October 18, 2011, stating in its decision that the proof of the defendant's guilt at trial was nothing less than overwhelming. (sighs) Which it was. It was a lot. But Mm -hmm. still wanting to fight it, which was his right, Christopher took his conviction to the U.S. Supreme Court, filing a petition on January 11, 2012. The Supreme Court denied his request on April 2, 2012. Okay, so they denied cert. They didn't hear it at all? Yeah, they didn't okay. even look at it. They said, mm, no, not this case. Okay. Christopher doggedly refiled on April 25, 2012, and the court denied that petition to grant certiorari on May 21, 2012. In 2014, Chris decided to strike out on his own, filing an appeal asking that he get a whole new trial, accusing his erstwhile defense team of not providing effective counsel during the appeals by not including their actions as ineffective counsel during his trial. (laughs) This appeal was, of course, denied. (laughs) And a lot of people got a chuckle out of this since his defense attorneys were, well, erstwhile in their endeavors. Well, more than erstwhile, I would say. Yeah, his defense attorneys, who have self-identified as friends of the family, have tried to keep the case alive through the court of public opinion, often raising red herrings, needlessly alarming the public, and causing general confusion. Which is really unfortunate. It is. The Where Are They Now portion of this episode is rather thin and a little sad. Joan Porco and her son John prefer their privacy about their current lives, and the extended family also prefers to stay out of the public light as they work toward healing. And it's a long road. There was a lot of damage there. It's heartbreaking when Mm -hmm. you think about all of the lives that were damaged by this. Yeah, it's really sad. What about Big Frank? Frank Porco was released from prison on September 24, 2005. 
He disappeared back into regular life until June of 2006, when his name appeared in the United States of America v. Vincent Basquiano. Vincent Basquiano had been accused of, well, a bunch of stuff, and most of it was stuff that he did. <laughs> How do you know that? Basquiano, who was the head of the Bonanno crime family at the time, had conceded to permit the government to submit a host of uncharged crimes as evidence in an upcoming trial. Wow. Yeah. The charges involved his extorting a variety of restaurants, all of the vendors at the Feast of the San Gennaro Festival and the New York City heating oil industry. Wow, that's a bit of trouble. Oh, yeah, but I'm not finished. He also allowed them to submit three murders, three conspiracy to murder charges, and a solicitation to murder, as well as an assault on an insubordinate Bonanno family member. <laughs> but he refused to allow the remaining requested pieces of evidence to be submitted. They were illegal policy gambling, which is also referred to as a lottery, mm-hmm. loan sharking, distribution of MDMA and heroin, the attempted murder of David Nunez, and the assault of Frank Porco. He allowed them to use a bunch of murders and extortions as evidence in a criminal trial, but wanted to fight an assault? That seems insane. I know, right? But it seems like he didn't want Big Frank's assault on the record because it revealed his direct supervisory role in the Bonanno family. He'd ordered Dominic Chicali and other Bonanno associates to put the hurt on Porco because he'd gotten into a dispute with someone from the Lucchese family. They were both involved in the Joker poker gambling offense together, and fighting was a beyond stupid way to bring attention to these activities. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't want the jury to see the clear connection. Anyway, just a point of interest and proof that Big Frank had gone right back into his family-related activities. And he'll probably always have some type of trouble he's getting into. True. So, the Porco family home was sold in October of 2005 to a couple from out of town. After the guilty verdicts came down, they noticed an increase in traffic. They made alterations to the landscaping in the porch, thinking it might change things, but it didn't. The curious will always be with us. Truth. What about Chris? What's he up to nowadays? Well, he's going to be hanging out in prison for the next several decades. His appeals are exhausted, and he is not eligible for parole until 2052, when he will be 69 years old. So, still in denial. If you have some time and haven't listened to a couple of our other podcasts and you want to start recognizing a few patterns more clearly regarding kids like this, check out episode 21, Death by Gaslight, the story of Chandler Halderson. Or for a different take, you could check out episode 14, Money, Murder, and Cows. It's the very sad story of Scott Moody, who didn't actually kill his family. And you'll start seeing the differences in these boys. I think that's a really good idea. So, first, we always love to thank you, our listeners, for making it all worth all of this work. Yes, thank you very much. And again, thank you, Bimbo with an Uzi. This was such a good story, and we're glad that you brought it to our attention. Yes. We love your comments and hearing what you want to hear about. Exactly. So, now we need to thank our sources. Okay, so we'd like to thank AllThat'sInteresting.com, the Bethlehem Public Library, the Times Union, Cosa Nostra News, CBS News, Journal News, Forensic Files, Campus Times, Spotlight News, The Berkshire Eagle, 
Democrat and Chronicle, Troy Record, Forensic Files Now, Poughkeepsie Journal, Wikipedia, Oxford Academic, Murderpedia, Nellie Andreeva's Deadline Hollywood, Medium.com, and Steve Ferrant, the author of November Memories Inside the Christopher Porco Case. This was an excellent read, as we've mentioned before, and we highly recommend it if you want to learn more about this case. Yes, and as always, thank you to Jade Brown for our music. This has been the Parasite Podcast. And remember, always sleep with one eye open. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. (laughs) 